Truth Espresso, episode 54. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, this is Daniel Minnick, and welcome again if you've been listening to other Truth Espresso episodes. But if this is your first episode, I'd invite you to listen to the last five episodes because my wife, Chelsea, and I have been doing a series of episodes discussing the topic of abortion, and particularly the arguments that abortion advocates would give to defend the idea that women in particular have a right to abortion, which Chelsea and I are pro-life 100%, and so we would believe that the act of abortion would be an act of homicide, of murder. It is killing the life of a full-fledged human being, the unborn. And so we have been asking the question, what is the unborn, and addressing challenges from pro-abortion advocates to justify abortion maybe in some cases cases and not all cases necessarily. The last episode we talked about the hard cases where some even pro-life advocates would say maybe there are some exceptions here when it's really tough situation like rape or incest, some horrible crime like that or in the desperate situation where you need to save the life of the mother and We talked about those cases in the last episode and demonstrated that neither rape nor incest are really desirable for abortion. In fact, abortion really amplifies and intensifies the problems of those horrible crimes and that also there really is no case, or if there are, there's very tiny cases where you might actually end up with the death of um, a fetus in the womb or the child in the womb but really in the case of saving the life of the mother there's never an intention to kill the baby when you're trying to protect the life of the mother and that's what really matters in those cases and a lot of cases that use this excuse are really not cases where it's necessary to kill the baby to save the life of the mother it's not a mutually exclusive concept And so now we're going to move on from specific arguments for abortion based on specific cases and get into the philosophical discussion. What does philosophy bring to the table in the abortion debate? And particularly the philosophy for abortion basically argues that abortion should be allowed in any case for any reason whatsoever based on a concept of rights. And now, particularly with 
philosophy, there is the bodily autonomy argument. Basically, if you have heard the slogan or a bumper sticker or if you heard someone who supports abortion say, my body, my choice, that is basically the bodily autonomy argument in a nutshell. And this argument is not saying anything about what is the unborn. It may or may not acknowledge what the unborn is, that it's a full human being with the right to life. In fact, many people who bring up the bodily autonomy argument will admit that the unborn is a full human being and admit that conceptually, no pun intended, the unborn has a right to life except if that right to life is superseded by a higher right, particularly the right of the mother over her own body. And so I have my wife once again as a guest on Truth Espresso, and we're going to discuss bodily autonomy. And so, Chelsea, welcome back to Truth Espresso. Hi, babe. Thanks for having me again. And our almost seven-month-old is joining us again. If you hear her in the background. Thank you, Chelsea, for um, participating in these discussions. I hope that our viewers have learned just as much as I do about all the medical knowledge that you bring to the table regarding um, the unfortunate reality of abortion procedures, but also medically why abortion is not justified in many of the cases that are brought to the table. But so now we go into philosophy and we talk about bodily autonomy. And so for our consideration, for our discussion, I want to bring up a name that is well known in the abortion debate, Judith Jarvis Thompson. Now, Judith Jarvis Thompson was an American philosopher well-known from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And so you know that people who come from MIT are going to be incredibly intelligent. And so I have no reason to doubt the intelligence of this woman, but intelligence does not necessarily equal truth. And so in 1971, Judith Jarvis Thompson wrote an article entitled A Defense of Abortion. And now if you're thinking of the timeline, if you recall the landmark case of Roe versus Wade, that was decided in 1973. So this article by Thompson was written two years prior to the landmark decision. And so according to Thompson in A Defense of Abortion, quote, You wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you, and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. And then to continue on, she says, to unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then he will have recovered from his ailment and can safely be unplugged from you. And so 
Ms. Thompson, in this article, presenting this scenario as a thought experiment, asks the question for us to ponder. How many of us would consider unplugging from this unconscious famous violinist if it meant that we had the freedom and the quality of life to be able to move around, to be able to work, to care for ourselves or other people. And so she asked the question that it would be really nice and a moral thing for you to do. It would be really caring if you were able to be put for nine months to sustain the life of this unconscious violinist but she asked the question basically never mind what would be the nicest thing to do the question is should this be legally required of you and now you think about it should the law require me to be stuck attached to this unconscious violinist who might not even be able to thank me for helping save his life and i'm stuck here plugged into him my kidneys are stuck to sustain his own to keep him alive for nine months and that would be a horrible miserable existence and if you don't have the quality of life how can you even consider that being a human and so for the sake of your sanity, your well-being, your quality of life, you decide even not to be nice, you know, even though you know it would be nicer to sustain this unconscious violinist, you can just simply unplug, walk away, and realize that you should not be legally obligated to forfeit your life, that you own your own body, you have autonomy over your own body, and therefore even Even though this unconscious violinist needs you to survive, the fact that your body is needed does not trump the right you have to control your own body. And so this is basically the bodily autonomy argument. It's not what is morally best, but really asking the philosophical question of, What is legally required? And does this thought experiment justify abortion? Basically, for any reason, even if you realize that killing a baby in the womb is killing a full human being with the right to life but if the mother has control of her own body owns her own body has bodily autonomy then shouldn't her right to control her own body and have the right to how her body is used really trump even an acknowledged right of someone who depends on her such as a baby in the womb So what do you think about this, Chelsea? Um, Does bodily autonomy hold sway here? And basically, does it end the abortion debate? And should abortion be legal just based on this premise, this thought experiment? Wow. Yeah, this argument is definitely an interesting one because it brings up a lot of different contradictions within the case that um, Ms. Thompson brings up. So if you consider that it's not just the woman's body that we're looking at here, there is also another human being inside her. So yes, it is her body, but there's two bodies. (laughs) You've got the unborn inside of her and you've got her body. And the intention is to murder the unborn inside her. In the violinist example, the intention is not to murder the violinist the intention is do you help or not help so i think that's one part of it to consider 
So another aspect to consider with the violinist argument is that there are certain laws that need to be in place to keep a check system in order. For example, there are laws against prostitution or exposing oneself in public. You have the bodily rights in those situations, but those are not appropriate. And so we have laws in place to keep things in that check and balance. And same with abortion. Abortion is the intentional killing of the unborn human being. And that is not a wise choice. That is not a good choice. We've talked about how that harms women, how that harms men. um, And ultimately, that's killing a human being. So just considering that there needs to be certain laws in place because of our sinful nature as man, we are prone to do things that are wrong. And God set up the whole law system in the Old Testament because man was sinful and we needed these restraints and to show us, to point us to Jesus Christ who fulfilled all these laws for us. Another aspect that we can consider in the violinist argument is everyone brings up my body, my choice. So they're concerned about the woman's choice to do with her body what she wants to do. But most of these arguments come up once the woman's pregnant. My thought is we need to back up before pregnancy is even in the picture. She chooses to engage in sexual activity that is most likely going to result in a pregnancy. That's a natural consequence of that intimacy. That's how God designed it. He designed for us to procreate. But with this argument, we are saying that we should have the sexual freedom without consequences of a potential child. But that's not what God says in his word. And I think that so many of these arguments and stuff really comes down to that core heart issue of are we going to follow God's rules and see what he says, how he created us even? My heart goes out for these women that think that they have this choice to kill that unborn child inside of them because that totally goes against how God made us. God made women to desire to have children, to want to raise the family. And when we're killing our own child inside of us, that woman must be in horrible torment and horrible pain to have to fall to killing her own child. So I think we definitely need to approach these women with that compassion, but also with that truth that that is a human being inside of them. And there is no place for a mother's rights over the human unborn child inside of her that gives her the permission to kill that unborn child. And God designed women to protect her children. If you think of some of the cliches, the mama bear comes out if her child is in harm's way. That's how God made women to protect their children. So ripping out the baby from inside of her is, again, going against that whole process. Yes, thank you, Chelsea. Really, some of these discussions come to the heart of the issue, the reason why someone would bring philosophy into this 
and try to make a difficult point is really kind of to challenge the moral foundations of things to kind of come up with this concept of rights and basically to distance morality ultimately from the law. Now, the law of God is moral, and I do realize, for example, sometimes you can't enforce all morality with a written law. For instance, you can't have positive laws that specify that parents must supply three square meals a day for their children. We recognize that's a moral thing that parents, you know, should do for their children, but if it's written in law, then it comes into problems where, say, there was perfectly valid reasons on any given day where they had two or one meal and it wasn't for anything malicious, it just happened to be, then, you know, you'd be in trouble with that law. And so, you know, we recognize that morality can't just always be written down in words, in a law, and forced in that way. But laws should reflect morality. Not all morality should be inscribed in written law, but the written laws should reflect morality. So now to go back to Thompson's thought experiment, I want to make a few points about it to compare it to abortion, because basically this article was entitled A Defense of Abortion. And is her thought experiment really a sufficient defense of abortion? Because obviously the scenario she gives as a thought experiment is not an abortion. So we have to see if this experiment holds up as a comparison, is or is it really comparing apples and oranges? And so Chelsea, you mentioned that prior to pregnancy, and Unless we're talking about the case of rape, it is a consensual act. And yet, in Thompson's article, when she gives this case of the unconscious violinist, she says, you wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist. Now, I understand that she's trying to say that you don't expect pregnancy. You take the test or whatever, or you surprisingly end up with pregnancy, hormones, morning sickness, so on. So a woman who ends up pregnant may not have been putting the date when she first realizes she's pregnant on the calendar in the future, expecting it to happen. She can have a consensual relationship with a man and find herself pregnant. But the point is, as you mentioned, pregnancy is a result of the act of relations with a man. And of course, it takes two to tango. As I mentioned in the last episode, it is a man and a woman, but pregnancy is a choice. And so if we're talking about my body, my choice, well, yes, uh, we're saying, yes, it is your body and it is your choice to engage in the actions and deal with the results. And so pregnancy is a result of specific actions. Um, Pregnancy does not happen accidentally by eating the wrong foods or breathing polluted air. It happens specifically by knowable acts that are intentionally done, except in the cases of rape. And so I don't think Ms. Thompson was using rape as the background for this illustration. 
But we see that this test fails because she is saying in this example, you find yourself in this situation and you had no idea this was coming. You didn't do anything to bring this upon you. But the comparison fails because pregnancy is not comparable to finding yourself waking up and being strapped, attached to an unconscious violinist. Now she tries to make the point by emphasizing a famous unconscious violinist. So what is Miss Thompson doing there? She's trying to emphasize the relative value of the person to whom you are attached in this thought experiment. And so, well, maybe if it was just some guy on the street trying to play music and earn a few pennies in the coffer. No, this is a famous unconscious violinist. So this person, this adult violinist, this musician is actually well known and therefore you are to think that he has value and this is to emphasize the point that this is someone who's really valuable who is depending on you so therefore here's all the more reason why you should stay attached and now because your sustenance of this attached unconscious famous violinist depends upon your kidneys and so you can help out a valuable famous unconscious violinist and yet you're supposed to realize then that even if it's a famous valuable person you still should have the legal right to unplug now, of course, this is to appeal to the way pro-lifers value the unborn, but she's trying to ascribe value in this case in a relative fashion that if someone is famous, therefore, it might have more value in the thought experiment for why you should sustain his life. And the pro-life position has to do with that all unborn lives are valuable in the sight of God, bear the image of God, and therefore their right to life does not depend on whether they're good at music or famous. It's in their humanity. Yeah, I love how you point out and emphasize that Thompson is trying to say the value of the violinist adds some type of value to who he is. As we were discussing in some of the previous episodes, specifically going through the sled arguments, looking at can we add or take away value to the human being? Well, the Bible tells us, no, we can't. We're actually valuable because that's how God made us. We have that intrinsic value. So we cannot add or take away from that. Each person is valuable and each person has the right to life, has the right to not be killed. Right, Chelsea. And so understanding, again, that we're talking about a thought experiment from Judith Jarvis Thompson and making the comparison with abortion because that's what she's trying to compare. That even if it's not pretty, even if it kills someone, bodily autonomy trumps the right to life of the unborn because the unborn is using the mother. And so this unconscious violinist is using your kidneys to survive. The unconscious violinist's circulatory system is plugged into yours, according to Thompson's illustration. And then let's notice another comparison, which I believe is apples and oranges. She said, quote, to unplug you would be to kill him. Now, is abortion unplugging the unborn from the mother. 
is there a clean removal of unscrewing some plastic or metal so that vital necessities are fed into the one who's attached? I don't see that as a valid comparison because the unborn are not mechanically attached to the mother and the act of abortion is not just simply unplugging the unborn from the mother. And so I think this is a failure in this thought experiment to prove that abortion is a valid right, even if it results in the death of someone. And then another failure, as she said, she tries to emphasize to unplug you would be to kill him. But there's a difference here. What we're talking about in her illustration there is what one would consider the right to refuse. And the right to refuse would mean this is a disconnect between morality and legality that we understand. Now, if someone has the right to refuse something because they own their body, then that's one thing. It may be immoral for that person to refuse, but we would recognize that that person shouldn't be legally required to be then hooked up and strapped to someone to sustain that person. But that's not what abortion does. Abortion is not just the right to refuse. It's not a simple, clean unplugging. Abortion is an act of intentionally killing. Now, there's theoretically a possibility of figuring out a way to sustain this unconscious violinist and perhaps there's even time after unplugging for to stay alive and remember even pro-abortionists will try to make a distinction between someone inside the womb and someone outside the womb there's also the problem of the illustration talking about being connected to the kidneys but the unborn are not connected mechanically to an organ but most importantly the act of abortion is taking instruments going in and intending to kill like have we ever heard of an abortion that was just cleanly removing a baby without any kind of violence done to the baby and then because if you could do that then it's like hey take the baby out at 23 weeks and then adopt the baby out but most abortions of which i'm aware are actively intending to kill even if somehow removing the baby from the mother wouldn't result immediately in the baby's death we're talking about dismemberment and sucking out with force to kill or crushing a skull i don't want to be too graphic here but that's what we're talking about it is intended to kill to rid of the person and not just simply the right to refuse and to unplug yeah so just to clarify a couple things that you mentioned is that the baby inside the uterus like you described an abortion is intentionally killing that human being So the choice that we're talking about here is the choice to kill someone. And that should never be a right choice. That should never be a legal choice. We do not ever allow the legal rights to go and kill your neighbor because that would be wrong. Even if your neighbor keeps coming over into your yard and taking food from your garden that's trespassing upon your property, that's taking something from you that could sustain you. But that does not give you the right, nor would the law see that that was legal for you to go and kill your neighbor. So just as I know 
it's kind of a more lighthearted example, but just as the unborn is inside of you, they are still a human being. They deserve the right to life and not the choice of the mother to go ahead and kill that child. And if you think about it, there's over 650,000 women making this choice every year to kill their unborn baby. A lot of these women, since Roe v. Wade, it's estimated about 20 million women have lost their lives due to the complications of abortion. What was so great about that choice for these poor women? That they are actually losing their lives because of this choice that most of the time they're being forced into making. So I just think that coming back to, yes, that is the unborn human being living inside the woman and that it is not her choice to do whatever she wants because we are talking about a human being there. Yes, exactly, sweetheart. And and of course, I want to remind us all that what we're talking about here is a thought experiment. And I believe that we have demonstrated that the thought experiment fails because, number one, you don't find yourself waking up when you're talking about pregnancy. It was a choice you did that resulted in the consequence. And just for an illustration, actions do have consequences, whether we intend the consequence to follow the action or not. Like take, for example, if you were to eat a gallon of ice cream every day, you know, you might really enjoy it. And legally, it's your choice to do that, to spend your money to eat that. And I would be against any law that would say that you don't have the legal right to eat a gallon of ice cream every day. That would be overreach of the law. But if doing so, you find out that you've gained a hundred pounds, you can't then say, well, my body, my choice, I have the right to eat that ice cream every day and not have the result that follows, which would be how your body metabolizes that much ice cream input into it every day. Now, I'm not comparing having a child or being pregnant with eating too much ice cream. I'm not minimizing that or I'm not making it a bad thing. All I'm illustrating with that example is actions have results. And so bodily autonomy does not mean that you have no responsibility over the results of the actions you choose to do. In fact, that itself should be bodily autonomy. Bodily autonomy should be coupled with bodily responsibility. And so as we're talking about my body, my choice, therefore it is your choice to do the action, not your choice to not have the result. And of course, I mentioned several points in which this thought experiment fails. But then let's ask the question, if this thought experiment fails, then obviously the article entitled A Defense of Abortion fails because this illustration fails to compare. It's comparing apples and oranges with pregnancy and abortion, and therefore this illustration fails to be a defense of abortion. And let's also keep in mind that this is a thought experiment, and our laws should not be based upon a thought experiment. A thought experiment is intended to arrange a scenario that is difficult to decide. 
And it's intended to make you think. It's intended for you to weigh consequences of both sides of the choice. And so with the thought experiment, that doesn't represent reality. In fact, Chelsea, you mentioned about 650,000 women every year. That doesn't mean that there are 650,000 unconscious famous violinists attached to people's kidneys every year. So this thought experiment does not demonstrate how we are to think of pregnancy and abortion. So now that we've gone over this thought experiment from Judith Jarvis Thompson, two years before that fateful decision of Roe versus Wade, Let's move on a few years later into 1978, where we have a case of McFall versus Shimp. And this is another argument that is used to support the bodily autonomy position to defend the act of abortion. So McFall versus Shimp was a case in 1978. Robert McFall of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had a blood disease that required a bone marrow transplant from a compatible donor. And this was a 1 in 60,000 match or chance of a match. And none of his siblings happened to be a match when tested, but his cousin David Shimp was. Despite the moral pressure from his family to donate his bone marrow, he basically had to have medical procedures done to extract some bone marrow to save the life of his cousin. David Shimp blatantly refused with all that pressure upon him. And his cousin, McFall, was desperate for his life and was likely to die soon. So Robert McFall took his cousin, David Shimp, to the court of common pleas in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. And Judge Flaherty presiding ruled that Shimp's position in not donating the bone marrow was, quote, morally indefensible, unquote, as we would expect and his family would expect. But the judge also said that to rule in McFall's favor would be setting a legal precedent that, quote, would defeat the sanctity of the individual and would impose a rule which would know no limits, and one could not imagine where the line would be drawn, unquote. And so this was a case where we actually do see the problems with reconciling morality and legality because we recognize that legally to enforce Shimp to undergo a medical procedure that could have consequences on him potentially, even though the doctors assured him that it shouldn't, yet there's always that possibility. But to force him to undergo a surgery to save someone else's life would be not legally feasible, even though, morally speaking, he should have done that if he cared for the life of his cousin. And there is a philosopher, of course, a writer by the name of David Boonin, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He uses these two examples, the example of uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's unconscious violinist and also the case of McFall versus Shimp to promote the idea of bodily autonomy as a defense of abortion. And he has written two well-known books. 
his first one called A Defense of Abortion, which is the same title as Judith Jarvis Thompson's article, but his book, A Defense of Abortion, has been lauded as one of the best written books defending abortion that we have. And then later on, he wrote a book entitled Beyond Roe, why abortion should be legal even if the fetus is a person. And so he, promoting this bodily autonomy argument, shows that, or he argues that, we shouldn't be fighting with the pro-life people over whether the unborn is a clump of cells or basically those type of things. We should concede to them that the unborn is a full human being and intrinsically has a right to life, but he tries to argue based on the unconscious violinist and McFall versus Shimp that even though morally we should take care of our kids that legally abortion should be allowed in any case or for any reason whatsoever simply because these two illustrations and McFall versus Shimp as an actual case argues that legally you should have the right to refuse to support someone and therefore abortion is justified for any reason whatsoever. So, do you have any thoughts on this, Chelsea? Yeah, so it's interesting that all of these philosophers and intelligent people, for sure, but um, again, not basing their reality on truth, that they all have a common theme of that there's a hierarchy of a person's rights and their value. And just thinking about how we presented some of this information earlier with the trotting out the toddler and how size and the whole sled argument, all those things, that doesn't add or take away your value. So if we're talking about a human being, we can't say this person's rights the mother's rights outweigh the rights of the human being unborn child inside of her and one example i remember with going through some of the training at justice for all was they would say okay if our nine-year-old son comes up to us and we're washing the dishes and he says mom can i kill this and your first question is what is it if it's a spider which i really don't like then I'd say, yes, please kill it and get it out of here as soon as you can. But if it is his younger brother, then I'd say, no, you can't kill your younger brother. So all of this is to point out that we always have to come back to that issue of what is the unborn. If the unborn is a human living being, a person from conception, there is never a time that it should be okay to kill that being, to kill that person. And even though they keep trying to say it doesn't matter if it's a human or not, you can say even outside of the womb, the child is still dependent on the mom. If you're nursing or breastfeeding your baby, they are dependent on you to have that nourishment. But what if you say, oh, I don't want to take care of my baby anymore. I have to wake up two, three times a night to nurse her and I want sleep. So I'm just going to stop nursing her. And uh, you know what? Actually, maybe I'll just kill her because now I don't even have to deal with that. That is not right. We would all be aghast by that logic. So why are we not aghast or infuriated that we are killing these unborn babies? 
4,000 a day. That's a huge number of babies that are being killed every single day just in the United States. And we can talk philosophy, we can bring up all these different arguments all day long and keep coming back to the point that this is not who God made us, this is not what God says, and that we need to defend these human beings. And why are we as pro-lifers not making any progress in this whole debate? Do you have some thoughts on that, babe? Yeah, I think I have some thoughts. I'll have to think them through and... I do want to get to point out this whole idea of philosophy and notice that even from the beginning of the series, we talked about over a hundred years ago where the science started to reveal what is the unborn. And so laws started to react to that and to realize what abortion was and that it was actually killing a human being. And so because of science, laws started to reflect the idea that if we know what it is, we treat it appropriately. But then philosophy has, st- has taken over and basically trumped the idea of all human r- lives being equal and as bearing God's image and that you don't have the right to intentionally kill another human being. But then because philosophy is taken over, let's take a look at all this philosophy. Let's take a look at this bodily autonomy argument is the idea of bodily autonomy really something that is so absolutely defined that we can't even change what that means? Because let's consider it as a slippery slope. I mean, we're not talking about formal logical fallacies where you could say this argument fails the test of formal logic because it violates bodily autonomy. Bodily autonomy is not an absolute definition because let's consider what autonomy over your body could even mean. As you mentioned, Chelsea, bringing out the two-year-old. Okay, so you have allegedly the right to control your body. And of course, we mentioned that that is not absolute and Even in the laws that we have today, there are laws against things that you ingest and, you know, maybe a libertarian might argue against that. But say there's Surgeon General warnings on products, don't smoke, don't drink when you're pregnant, which of course is ironic considering the idea of abortion on demand. But does bodily autonomy, is that absolute in a objectively absolute definition? The two-year-old, the toddler, you have to use your body to feed the toddler. You have to use your body to take care of the toddler when the toddler is sick, to bring the toddler to the doctor. And of course, if you don't treat your toddler right, there's such a thing as child protective services. As flawed as they are, their intention is to make sure that parents are not being neglectful, not being negligent, caring properly for their children. But it requires your body to work It requires your body to earn money. It requires your body to produce the means necessary to care for other people. It requires your body to hold a six-month-old baby. It requires your body to cook food. You You can think of countless ways that it requires your body to do things that the law or even the courts could hold you accountable for if you're not taking care of your child in a way that would be appropriate for humanity. 
even in secular courts and secular laws, there is the recognition that you don't truly own your body in the ultimate sense because the bodily autonomy argument basically boils down to, you know, I can kill what is inside me, but what if what your arm can reach is an extension of your bodily autonomy? Philosophers can argue that. You can stretch, you can change the definition of bodily autonomy to make it that you have the right to kill someone who is using your body. Let's take Judith Jarvis Thompson's thought experiment because we're talking about someone outside the womb in that illustration and just the right to refuse. But what if for health reasons, mental health reasons, that then you could argue that you have the legal right to take a knife and kill that unconscious conscious violinist. You know, it's the same effect, right? There's all kinds of ways you could stretch the bodily autonomy argument into what would result in what we detest, even leftists, rightists, what we detest as fascism, Nazism, racism, all kinds of things like that are based on philosophy. And there's really no end to what you can argue, what you can validate as an excuse to kill someone based on stretching philosophy that's not based on absolutes. And so the only real solution to this abortion debate is to recognize absolutes. And to go to the word of God to realize what is the unborn. We ask the question, what is the unborn? It is a full human being. But even to think of it deeper as we go to the absolutes of the word of God, what makes a human being even have value? What makes a human being even have the right to life? Because a human being is created in the image of God, does bear God's image, and for that reason... Because God exists, because God created us, and because God created humanity with a purpose, we are the creatures of God, and therefore there is such a thing as absolute truth, and therefore the philosophies of this world can't really come to an ultimate, absolute conclusion In this, there's always going to be a progressive shift to keep redefining things. And so I hope that this episode and this discussion has really gotten you to think and re-evaluate the challenges of the bodily autonomy argument, how even it fails and all the illustrations of it fails and the unconscious violinist and McFall versus Shimp, neither of them support the right to kill the unborn. And so I hope that after all these episodes talking about abortion, you will have a renewed vigor in understanding what pro-life is really all about and how life is valuable, human life is valuable before God. Stay tuned to the next episodes as we resolve our series on abortion and really bring it to a closure and talk about the real solution to the abortion debate and worldviews. Stay tuned. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. 
Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.